It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and podcast for Thursday, July 23, 2020. On the show today is Dr. Daniel Kawa. With the interview, here is librarian Danielle Belanger. Good afternoon, everyone. Danielle Belanger here, Manager of Library Programs and User Experience at the Code St. Luke Public Library. Today, I feel honored to have the opportunity to host a live conversation with international best-selling author and medical doctor, Daniel Kawa. Thank you also to Jillian at Simon & Schuster for making this event possible. Author Daniel Kawa produces engrossing novels with an intensity that matches the challenge of his other role as physician and head of ER at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver where he has been fighting on the front lines of COVID and the opioid crisis. His first five novel, novels, I'm sorry, medical thrillers, focus on themes that lie at the heart of his professional life, delving into topics as diverse as superbugs, pandemics, addiction, DNA evidence, and patient abuse. His most recent trilogy, The Far Side of the Sky, Rising Sun, Falling Shadow, and Nightfall Over Shanghai, tells a little known but amazing historical chapter of the Second World War when 20,000 Jews fled Germany to find shelter in only one city, Shanghai, the Paris of the East. He is the international best-selling author of Pandemic and We All Fall Down, which looks at what would happen if the Black Death returned in modern times. Dr. Kala's latest medical thriller and 11th novel, The Last High, pulls back the curtain on the opioid crisis and explores the complex layers of culpability and responsibility for this other massive public health crisis that continues to ravage our country alongside coronavirus. The last high is currently a national bestseller. So now I'd like to say good afternoon and welcome to Dr. Kala, who likes to be called Daniel, I'm sorry. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and our audience today, despite your busy schedule and dual career. So first, I would ask uh, that you please enlighten our audience on how you go about finding the time for a successful writing career while maintaining your role as head of the ER at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. Well, thanks, Danielle. Thanks for having me on, and it's great to be in Montreal, albeit virtually. Um, yeah, it's probably the number one question I get asked and uh, I never have a very good answer for it, except to say that I'm an inherently lazy person. Um, and, you know, people find that sometimes hard to believe, but I really am. If I, you know, I, I can stretch a shower and a shave into an all day affair if I don't have enough to do. But one of the great things about emergency medicine and writing now is that uh, I feel this compulsion, you know, at work, I have no choice but to see, get the job done. And when it comes to writing, I feel that same compulsion. So I'm, I'm always much better when I'm multitasking. It's a natural, uh, it's a necessary attribute of emergency medicine anyway. Um, and for me, it's a, it, it adds, you know, I write primarily thrillers, you know, as you said, some historical novels, but even then there was suspenseful historical novels. I, I find that the urgency of my job and my busyness in life sometimes um, comes out on the page and, you know, and, and adds to the, the sense of uh, a pace that's so important to a thriller novel. So uh, I love being busy. I, uh, you know, if you give me six things to do, I might get five of them done, but if you give me one thing to do, I'll never get it done. So 
it's just the way my temperament is. I do better under pressure. <clears throat> okay, thank you. Thank you so much. I was also asked to find out if for some reason you were forced to choose between one hmm. or the other career, which one would you choose and why? <laughs> uh, you're stumping me off the start here, Daniel. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really love you know, what I do you know, the medicine is very fulfilling. It's a kind of human interaction I don't get with the writing. And yet the writing is this creative outlet that um, this passion of mine, you know, it's it's a sort of an artificial choice. I mean, you know, right now the writing doesn't support me at, you know, my lifestyle anyway, enough that it would be an option. But even if it was, I think I'm going to try to work for another six or seven years in emergency medicine. I definitely think when I retire or leave emergency that uh, that I'll write full time. But uh, until then, I don't want to have to make that choice. I like the balance. Okay, that's fair enough. Thank you. Uh, could you please tell us some more about your own experience at the Vancouver ER and having to deal with COVID patients? And how would you say this experience differed from previous outbreaks such as SARS? Hmm. Well, you know, <clears throat> Vancouver and BC in general has been very lucky and also, to be honest, well managed. You know, we've had great public health and governmental policy, but we really have had less cases, certainly much less cases than Quebec and many other places in Canada and, and even in the world. So, uh, you know, it was terrifying in March because we had early cases and, you know, and we just didn't know which way it was going to go. And as you pointed out, I've written speculative fiction about pandemics and it was kind of worse than anything I expected it just the spread was so quick and we were you know in March and April we were watching Italy where a hundred doctors had died and you know and the hospitals were being overwhelmed and we felt very vulnerable very exposed we've had a very low grumbling caseload you know it's changed everything in emergency our PPE that we have to wear the way we separate patients and yet there's this kind of new normal, you know, we do still don't see that much COVID in Vancouver. So it's not the majority of our work or caseload. It hangs over us, not just professionally, but like everybody, every part of our life. But uh, it's by far the most devastating epidemic. I mean, I've lived medically through HIV, through SARS, through H1N1. I mean, we only had like two cases of SARS in Vancouver. It was more of a, a threat than an actual uh, you know, outbreak, at least for Vancouver. And Toronto is really the only place that saw substantial SARS. But this one is just worse because, you know, the spread is so extensive. It's such an unpredictable virus. It can be so harmless to some people and so deadly to other people. Um, so certainly it's had a bigger impact than any outbreak I've ever lived through um, and taught us a lot of lessons about, you know, preparation and medicine and, and also humanity. I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I think... I was saying that, uh, you know, I finished an emergency uh, shift on Sunday and feeling good. It was a good, busy shift and interesting work. And, you know, the patients for the most part did, did well. And I was leaving the hospital feeling pretty good. And right in front of the hospital was this massive march of protesters who were protesting masks and physical distancing and protesting COVID in general. And one of them saw me in my scrub top and said, screamed at me, COVID is a conspiracy. And it and, you know, I was just so, I think, I think in general, you know, I've written about the Black Death, I've written about SARS-like virus, I've written about the Spanish flu. I think in general, uh, 
pandemics and outbreaks have the ability to bring the best and the worst out in people. I've seen lovely acts of altruism and kindness and huge support. But when I see, you know, frankly, what I consider morons like that, marching in front of the hospital that's trying to help these people, it's kind of disheartening. It was somewhat of a wake-up call. You know, I, I, it just astounds me how some people treat virus like it's, you know, a virus, uh, an outbreak, like it's an infringement on personal rights or some political conspiracy. It's just idiocy. And um, so anyway, um, I don't know why I got on those rants, but you are that rant in particular, but you just reminded me of the fact that everything is different now. So certainly I can see how, how that would be upsetting to, to any of us, but especially if you are on the front lines mm -hmm. working to, you know, try and treat people and fight COVID, how that would be very upsetting. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. So uh, I'd like to just go back to what you said about maybe some uplifting moments, because I was reading a little story about how there had been a ritual of clapping outside your hospital. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I don't know if it goes on. I think it goes on in many places, but Vancouver really embraced that 7 p.m. cheer for healthcare workers. And especially downtown where my hospital is, it's a densely populated area. And they really made uh, a huge event out of seven o'clock. You know, everybody would stop in the downtown core and they would get out and bang pots and pans in the uh, apartments and condo buildings and fire trucks would go by and, you know, there'd be this huge cheer. And it was, yeah, it was, it really was uplifting. And, you know, especially when we were feeling as vulnerable we were, as we were early on, there was this sense of community. There was the sense that you weren't in it, you know, alone, that, that, that the, the community that your clientele, your people had your backs. And so it was really, it was actually something kind of beautiful, you know? Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Uh, much has been said about the similarities of what is predicted in your novel, novels, several of them, and what has subsequently happened in real life. Mm -hmm. How has that made you feel? And have people literally stopped you on the street in your daily life to discuss this phenomenon? <laughs> No, but I don't get stopped a lot on the street. I don't have that kind of street cred. But, uh, you know, I, I have got people have said, oh, you predicted. Predicting a pandemic does not take Nostradamus. It doesn't even take a lot of foresight. I mean, it's like, like me saying there's going to be another tsunami somewhere. There's going to be another earthquake or another, you know, <clears throat> forest fire. Pandemics are predictable. They happen. It's just that we haven't seen one like this since the Spanish flu. So people forgot how bad they can be and how extensive they can be. You know, all of us, including people in medicine, got a little bit complacent. But it's silly for us to ever expect there, there'll, be, there'll be another, there'll be something after <clears throat> COVID, I promise you. Um, it might be another 100 years or it might be two more years before something worse comes along. So predicting a pandemic wasn't difficult. Um, predicting how people would react to it and how governments would react to it and stuff. Uh, that was more, um, you know, um, it was more fun on the creative side to try to imagine and, and to see the, the, the better and worse angels of people coming out. And, uh, and so in that sense, I think I gave a relatively accurate portrayal that people would react differently, you know, and especially my last book, We All Fall Down, where I which is a story about the plague coming back in modern, the Black Death, you know, the bubonic plague coming back in modern day Italy, 700 years after the Black Death ravaged Europe. 
and I used a, a lot of parallels to the original Black Death. There's a whole sub-story about a diary of a doctor who lived through the plague, through the great times, and it goes back and forth between contemporary and medieval times. But all the kind of mor moral lessons and, and sociological lessons learned of what the plague do does, you know, there was scapegoating back then, there was, but, you know, there was altruism back then too. It was, and, you know, we're seeing, you can even parallel a lot of what happened in the Black Death to what's happening now during COVID. I mean, we, of course, haven't seen anything close to the death toll that they experienced, but, but yeah, it was interesting exploring what human nature would do in the face of a plague. Thank you. So uh, I think you beat me to my next question, which had to do with exactly we all fall down. Um, for those who don't know, it's um, it's about the plague that has resurfaced in Italy and your protagonist and NATO infectious disease expert named Dr. Alana Vaughn is on a case and on the hunt for the source of the dark disease. So my two questions here are what brought you to write about the Black Death? And how important is it for you to be historically accurate? Uh, yeah, good questions. Uh, you know, I've been obsessed with the Black Death. It speaks a lot about my personality and how much fun I am at a cocktail party. But um, it's, you know, because, because I've been aware of it since I was, you know, basically in, in preschool, you know, with nursery rhymes and images and stuff it's become you know it's become culturally entrenched for over hundreds of years because of the impact it had it affected everything about history and literature and etc so it was vitally every time i write a book that's about medicine or history it's very important to me i'm writing fiction and i'm trying to entertain people but it's you know as hopefully we'll talk about with the last high it is vitally important to me to be medically accurate to be historically accurate um as a kid growing up, I learned a lot of history from fiction, you know, people like Leon Uris or <clears throat> James Clavell or, you know, uh, this is how I learned, you know, complex subject matters by introducing, you know, a couple compelling characters and maybe a love story or whatever, but engaging you, making history live. And that's what I, I tried to do in, in We All Fall Down. And in, in all my novels, I try, you know, even though I'm not a medical, I'm certainly not a historical expert, and I'm not a medical expert on everything I write about, I always try to turn to the people who know and present it um, in such a way that people might learn a thing or two, and that certainly they won't, whatever facts I present about medicine history will be accurate, and I won't mislead people when they read my novels. Okay, thank you. So it appears you're always just one step ahead of me, Daniel. <laughs> so uh, now I'd like to read a brief summary about your latest novel, The Last High. In The Last High, Dr. Kawa explores the perfect storm of greed, addiction, and crime behind the malignant spread of fentanyl, which is killing people faster than any known epidemic. From the shoddy labs where the drugs are cooked to the hospitals and morgues where the victims end up. From the inner city alleys where drugs are injected to the high rises and high school parties where they're smoked and ingested. And from the international crime syndicates to the street dealers providing a steady supply of new deadly product. With his signature compassion, Kala uses this book to thrill and educate readers about the effects of opioids in the most terrifying realistic novel he's ever written. So now I would like to ask you, uh, why choose the opioid crisis as the topic of your latest novel? 
Well, you know, I, I've tried to, you know, where I can be topical with my medical choices. And uh, I have, of all the books I've written, none have hit home nearly as close as uh, the last high. <clears throat> I've lived this opioid crisis professionally for the last 20 years. I've seen hundreds of patients uh, die over the years. Um, I've seen the devastating consequences of what opioids in general do, but specifically what the fentanyl crisis has done. Uh, I've, and, you know, personally, I've been so fortunate that myself, my immediate family has not been touched directly by opioids, but I know friends who have lost kids. I know, you know, you don't have to ever in, especially where I live in Vancouver, you don't have to go far to find a, you know, a, a connection to the opioid crisis. The degrees of separation are few. And, and it's one of the main themes of my novel is that only, pretty much anyone can be touched by this. And uh, so this was a very, very important story for me to tell. And I really think it's an, you know, I've never written, I've never written a novel that's such an allegory before that, that is meant particularly, I've had lots of friends who tell me they're going to get their teenage or their 20 something. I have kids in their young 20s, late teens. And, and, and so it's just so important. I, I wanted to get the word out, you know, I, I've compared this, there was a great series in the 1990s called Scared Straight a documentary series where they would take these juvenile offenders into the worst um, jails, you know, like Rikers Island and stuff and introduce them to the most hardcore murderers and, and lifers. Uh, and these convicts would basically just yell at them for an hour and tell them all the terrible things that will happen to them when they reach jail and how, you know, and the whole idea was that they would be so terrified. It would be such a deterrent from them uh, coming, <clears throat> committing more crimes when they, when they reached legal age. And so I, I tried to make this book the novelistic equivalent of Scared Straight, you know, where the idea is you can see just how devastating and how easily it is to become a victim of opioids. And, and, and so that's a very, very important message that I'm trying to tell in this novel. Okay, thank you, Daniel. Uh, I was also going to ask you what's happening on this front right now, because the only thing we seem to hear about is COVID. Um, but this hasn't stopped. The crisis hasn't stopped when it comes to opioids. Um, so how is it that you deal with both sort of crises happening at the same time at your ER? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's one of the tragedies is that, you know, of COVID is that there's so many, so much collateral damage so many other victims, uh, and certainly it's been true. The opioid crisis, it was never fully under control in Vancouver, but the death rate had dropped a little. We now have had two months in a row of record overdose deaths. And in fact, the last two months alone of deaths account for more than all of our COVID deaths in total since March, uh, you know, some 350 people. And, and really, and I know it's apples and oranges to compare the two, but the average age of death from COVID in BC is the early 80s, the average age from opioids, the early 30s. And it's just, these are young people, almost exclusively young people who die from uh, opioid overdoses. And people might argue, well, it's a lifestyle choice and such, so you can't really compare it to an infection. And, and I don't really see it as that as all, at all. I, I see it as, a, uh, as an illness. Addiction is an illness like, like many others. 
and uh, one not to be stigmatized. And, you know, besides which, it's not just addicts who are dying of opioid use. There's, you know, as I get into my novel, first-time users, accidental users, all kinds of other people die as well. But, but uh, yeah, so, but since COVID has come, we've lost some of the gains we've made dealing with the opioid crisis. And it's partly natural. You can only put so many resources in one place at once. But it's had weird effects as well. Like, you know, we so a lot of our harm reduction involves not using alone. And so with safe injection sites and stuff, so people could be observed when they're using opioids. And as long as you catch somebody, opioid overdose is the simplest poisoning to treat. Just somebody has to be there to inject the antidote naloxone. It's when users use alone that they're so much likelier to die. But early on, interestingly enough, and sadly enough, the users were becoming scared of getting COVID, scared of not social distancing, and so we're more likely to use alone, and you know, and their risk of dying of, of opioids was exponentially higher than COVID, but they didn't realize it that way. So, yeah, it's been it's been a tragedy compounding another tragedy. Okay, thank you, uh, Daniel. Unfortunately, I don't think many of our audience have had the chance to read your latest novel yet. And part of the reason is because, uh, yes, it's coming. We've ordered it, but uh, there was a big slowdown because of COVID getting, uh, getting new books into the library. Yeah. Um, so this being said, uh, would you be able to share maybe a, a short reading from your book just so people can get a sense of your writing style? Sure, I'd be Thank happy you. to. I think the easiest is just, just to read the prologue because it's quite short and it sets up the whole premise for the novel anyway. So. Perfect, thank you. Um, so yeah, so I'll read that. <clears throat> so this is the last high and it's the prologue. Um, <clears throat> the house music courses through Alexa. The hypnotic beat and melting layers of sound feel as if they come from within, as if her heart is the amplifier. And the warmth is so enveloping like being lowered into the most perfect bubble bath. The bliss is almost unbearable. Alexa can't lift her head off her chest, but she can move her eyes. With a quick sweep of the room, she sees all the friends who matter most to her, Rachel, Nick, Joshua, Grayson, and Taylor. The only ones who matter at all, really. Taylor, her very best friend, is slouched at a weird angle on the couch beside her. Taylor had promised to ensure Alexa got some alone time with Josh at the party, even though she had a crush on him too. Typical Taylor always putting friends first. Her eyes are still open, but the pupils are as tiny as pin pinholes. And the complexion, it's grayish blue, while her lips have turned almost purple. So strange, but so beautiful. Alexa shifts her gaze to the left and sees Josh and Gray sprawled out on the other couch, propped up only by their abutting shoulders. Josh's eyes are as glassy as Taylor's, while Gray's are shut altogether. They're both so still. And Josh's exposed arms are modeled deep dark blue. Alexa wishes she could tell him just how much she loves him. Tonight was supposed to be the night. Alexa looks down at her own hands. Her fingers feel foreign to her, and the color of her nails match that of Taylor's lips. She knows it's not right, but it's still so wild. The floating warmth intensifies. Alexa feels as though she's falling off her couch, even though she's not moving. She's never drunk anything more than a beer or two in her 16 years. How could one cup of Nick's punch make her so woozy? Somewhere in the back of her brain, she can hear her mother's panicked voice, a distant scream, telling her to breathe. But her mom's nowhere near the party. Alexa finds it all kind of funny. She wants to laugh. She wants to tell Taylor how exquisitely wrong it all is. But she can't even move her lips. 
Besides, dreams are stealing over her now, and she can't hold on any longer. So that's the, the prologue and introduces really the premise of the story, which is that these five, you know, a group of seven teenagers overdose at a party and five of them basically die right away. And none of them know they've even taken opioids. And, you know, one of them survives, but only survives to be on a life support. And it's questionable whether she's brain dead, Alexa, that character, the whole novel. <clears throat> and so an emergency doctor who's next addict herself and is also a poison expert like we in emergency often have subspecialty and my hero, Julie is, uh, is also a toxicologist with a special interest because she lost her fiance to a fentanyl overdose. So she knows what it's like. So when she has to try to resuscitate these victims, she gets involved into the investigation to find out where this incredibly lethal fentanyl is coming from. And she pairs up with a detective friend slash potential love interest um, to try to track down the source. And it takes them through the criminal underbelly of Vancouver's fentanyl trafficking world um, to try to figure out where the drugs are coming from and prevent more people from succumbing to this ultra, ultra potent fentanyl. You know, and so that's basically the premise of the novel. Okay, thank you so much for sharing. Um, so I'm just gonna read a short review from Robin Harding internationally best-selling author of The Arrangement and the Party, who says, a riveting thriller, The Last High features the most evil and insidious of villains, opioids. This important must-read book is not only well-researched and entirely realistic, it gives a human face to a devastating epidemic. So you spoke a little bit about um, humanizing epidemics earlier. Um, it, was this important to you in this latest novel? Yeah, very much so. You know, there's a, you know, the, <clears throat> the problem with drugs in general and specifically opioids is it's easy for people who are detached from, from that world to kind of have an us and them mentality. That's, these are other people. This is not my family. This is not my social circle. But people don't understand the reach of this drug and how quickly these other people usually start off like the rest of us. Nobody wants to end up a hardcore intravenous drug addict living in an alley somewhere or, you know, <clears throat> committing petty crime for existence. It's, it's an illness and it's, you know, it can happen very quickly. And I, I wanted people to see the face of, of the most, the hardest effective, which is in Vancouver, our downtown East side drug users. But I also wanted to show them the successful uh, businessmen who are also closet addicts because they got addicted to prescription painkillers like so many people have been and the teens who you know somebody is spiking a, a punch without even them realizing they're taking opioids it is such a heterogeneous group of victims um, and when you take just the direct victims who die or, or or brain damage from it then you extend it to all the families and loved ones who also become victimized it is a it is a massive and tragic reach that this drug has. And so I wanted people to see that. And, you know, I think, not that I'm fond of quoting Joseph Stalin, but, you know, Joseph Stalin once said that one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic, right? And for me to say 12,000 Canadians have died in the last three years of opioid overdose doesn't mean anything. But if I can try to introduce a reader inside the mind and the heart, of someone who, who dies or who loses someone to opioids, then I think it's more powerful that way, you know? 
Yes, certainly. Thank you. Um, so it seems that the audience also knows where I was about to go because now I was about to say, uh, let's take a few minutes and check if we have any questions from the audience and we do. Great. So the first question uh, from the audience is, would you ever write a book about COVID um, and your experiences fighting it? No, <laughs> for, for a few reasons. One, I think there'll be a thousand books about COVID in the next six months. So I was beaten the punch. Two, I'm, I've written all I want to write about epi you know, infectious epidemics right now. And uh, three, I feel, I, I, you know, much as I was on the front lines, I wasn't on the front lines so far, and I hope I never will be, of the worst of it. I didn't see the hospitals overflowing with ICU patients. I didn't see my colleagues falling sick like they did in, and they are seeing in places in the US right now. I don't have that firsthand experience to write that story. So yeah, no, I don't think I, I, have, okay. other, I have other fish to fry. No problem. Thank you, Daniel. Um, second question is, do you find it easy and natural to write in the voice of a woman as your main character? And what led you to decide on doing that? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple answers. One is the not politically correct answer, but I'll start with, first of all, the fact that I actually love writing female protagonists. Uh, I've had in, the luck of having incredible women in my life, you know, starting with my mother, who was a trailblazing, you know, young Jewish doctor in England when, you know, when it wasn't like there weren't doctors when she started, but they certainly were in the minority. And she's always been in this inspirational person to me and you know and, and 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 probably the most amazing person i've ever known and uh, so i've always known uh, strong women and appreciate it i have lots of very good female friends um many of my best friends are, are women so i've always felt that that perspective and that you know and also to write empathy to write sympathy for me is easier to do from the perspective of a female lead they come to it more naturally i find and express it more naturally so i'm very comfortable and i really like it so that's the idealistic answer. The practical answer is from a practical point of view, it, you know, women, especially female fiction books are bought, taken out from libraries, 80% of the readership is female. And, you know, and so if it relates, if I can relate better and create something more interesting to the lion's share of the readers out there, which are women, I, I'm happy to do that. So my publishers always, happy for me to write a female lead character. But if I didn't feel comfortable, if it didn't ring true to me, you know, I often, in this book as an example, you know, I would say I get much more com compliments about the female characters and that people relate, even the men who read this book relate better to the, you know, to the, the favorite characters generally tend to be the, the, the women in my books. So for whatever reason, it works very well for me. Okay, perfect, thank you. Uh, next question from the audience is, what are you working on next? And I know you just released this last book, The Last High, but no, we a, still have a, the question. It's a good question. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually a full book ahead. <laughs> I'm working on the book after the next book. So the book I just finished is a thriller about the anti-vax movement, which um, I think will be very topical. <laughs> So I, I tried to tackle, I've always been fascinated by the people who believe in, 
in anti-vax, um, you know, or vaccine hesitancy, as some people call it. Um, I, 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 so I, I wrote a novel that, again, explored it. It's a fiction. It's a thriller with a, with a kind of a conspiracy uh, subplot to it. But it gives me a big chance to explore the themes of, you know, pro and anti-vax. Um, you can guess which side I come down on in the end. But I tried to be sympathetic. I think there's a lot of intelligent people who are in the vaccine hesitancy group. But, you know, I think they're, my belief is they're misguided in their beliefs. And that's going to come into sharper focus once a COVID vaccine, God willing, comes out. But, uh, yeah, so I'm excited. It's called Lost Immunity. And it's going to come out next March from Simon & Schuster. Um, so that book's already written and now I'm trying to hit on, a, the, the novel pitch for the book after that. Oh, perfect. Thank you. So lost immunity is your next project. Mm -hmm. Uh, next question from the audience is, do you feel at all hopeful that the stigma around opioid addiction will lessen in the future? That's a great question. Hmm. Do I feel hopeful? I think so. I think, I think younger generations have a better understanding of it. I am not uh, politically on the fringe in my own personal beliefs about anything. I'm, I, I'm somewhat of a centrist, I think, when it comes to most of my political views. But, you know, as a doctor who's lived and dealt with this, the whole stigmatization and particularly criminalization of opioids makes no sense to me whatsoever. I look at these people not as criminals, the, the users and the addicts, but as, as victims. There are criminals involved, and there's an easy way to get rid of the criminals, and that's not bring the death penalty in. It's to legalize opioids and control the substance and prevent, you know, you could get rid of the whole underworld and, you know, would basically with a passage of a law, and you would save so many lives, and you wouldn't create one more addict by doing so. But a lot of people don't accept that and don't believe that. They think the only answer is with policing and crackdown and it'll never work. And so I hope that the people are going to come around to that. I hope people understand that these people, it's beyond their choice. When you're an opioid addict, you live from fix to fix. It's not a conscious choice. It's not a moral choice. It is a basic drive and instinct that, that these people have. And, you know, and, and we need to look at them compassionately. We need to find them help, putting them in jail, uh, you know, or trying to crack down on them is not going to change anything. And it's not going to stop anyone from becoming an opioid addict. And it's not going to save a single life. Okay, thank you. Uh, I believe someone who was calling in may have wanted to ask a question. So I'm going to try and allow them to speak. Hello, caller. No, I'm sorry, Daniel, that didn't seem to work out. Uh, I was trying, but I will just reiterate if that person who called in um, can raise their hand, I think we'll be able to get to the question. Otherwise, um, if there are any other questions, please just keep uh, adding them to the queue. Um, I do see a question, uh, Daniel. It is did you ever take any writing courses? <laughs> I want to know if whoever asked that had read any of my books or they're just asking out of interest. But, uh, no, not a lot. I mean, I, you know, when I was, when I first finished uh, my training in medicine, I took a couple of uh, night school university courses in screenwriting, 
which were very instructive and helpful, but primarily they whet my appetite for, for writing. And so then I did a lot of self-education. Um, I read, you know, pretty much everything I could find on writing. Uh, by the way, any aspiring writers out there, I always recommend Stephen King's book on writing. Uh, not because it's a technical guide to how to write, but because it's um, such a good uh, inspirational book for people who might want to write. But yeah, so I just, I learned by trial and error. My first couple of manuscripts didn't get published. And I, uh, you know, I was, I just developed this passion. And I, and I, I never, you know, I don't think I'm technically a, a great writer. I don't think I'm a brilliant <clears throat> writer of prose by any means. But what I think I am is a good storyteller. And, you know, I, I sort of innately knew that I could tell a story. But I think I've really honed that skill over multiple novels. And uh, I think, you know, through my work and stuff, I've been exposed to so many aspects of life. And, and I do, you know, feel like I'm generally a semi-empathetic person. And so I, I think I can create compelling characters to tell stories that I want to tell. But uh, yeah, it was largely self-taught and um, a trial and error. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Daniel, do you think the anti-vax people come from the same place as the anti-mask people who think COVID is a conspiracy? It's a question, not from me, from the audience, I'd like to specify. You know, I think that's a good question. I, I, I'd like to think that the uh, there's a lot more people in the anti-vax movement than the anti-mask. I mean, the anti-mask movement not only defies science of any kind and plays into the most base, ignorant conspiracy theories, it's also an inherent kind of selfishness and cruelty to think that you can, you know, you can play Russian roulette with the people around you. You could argue that anti-vax um, has a similar, you know, effect in herd immunity, but it's, it's, it's so much different, whether you choose to get a flu vaccine, whether you choose to get your kids the measles vaccine, you, you could argue that they're doing some damage, but this, these anti-mask people, these people who deliberately go around congregating in tight places, they literally could be responsible for thousands and thousands of deaths in the long term. And I, I have no respect for them. I, 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 you know, the internet allows everybody to be an expert on everything. Uh, and it's, it's, to me, they're deeply offensive. I look at them as a very different group than the anti-vaccine you know, vaccine hesitancy movement, although I think there is some overlap. So here in Quebec, uh, we have to wear masks out in public. It was just mandated a few days ago and on public transit and in public buildings. And um, I work for Code St. Luke and in the city of Code St. Luke, they have special bylaws where in every municipal building, you have to wear your mask and in high rises and these sorts of things. Uh, just out of curiosity, where are you on that front in Vancouver? Uh, it's still voluntary in Vancouver, but if you look at our caseload, you know, we're a fraction of Quebec's. It's, uh, you know, we, we've had a spike in our cases the last week. We've gone from 10 cases a day to 30, which is, you know, I think we're at like, you know, less than 5% of the total cases Quebec has had. So the whole mask thing makes a ton of sense. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's such a basic. I mean, they knew that in the time of the Black Death, right? So we should know that now. But it is relative, you know, when the, in, when the relevant, when the prevalence of the disease is so low, like it is right now in BC, it's much less necessary to wear masks, you know, you're much less. And in other places, it should be absolutely unthinkable to go anywhere without a mask. But you, you do need to apply 
some logic and some data to the decisions you make for your local region. Yes, of course. Thank you. Uh, another question from the audience is, do you write every day and can you describe a typical day in your life vis-a-vis -vis medicine and writing? <laughs> it's funny because the answer to both those is a resounding no. I do not write. And, and there's, you know, they're similar in the sense, you know, first of all, no two emergency shifts are alike. It's one of the great joys of doing emergency medicine. I mean, there's obviously, you know, similarities and patterns, but you never know what's going to come through the door. You don't know if it's going to be crazy busy or super quiet or people are going to be super sick or maybe the neurotic or so you don't know. And, and my writing is much the same. When I'm in the middle of a manuscript and have momentum in the wind at my back, I can write a whole day away without thinking about it. Then I can go months and months without, you know, aside, aside from a few emails and, you know, I, I keep my publicist, my publicist Jillian, I think is on the line. I keep her busy with queries and texts and emails and, and, you know, and when a new book comes out that <clears throat> brings all the kind of promotional stuff and, and work you do in that sense and social media in a, in a different way. But I haven't done any, you know, legitimate creative fiction writing in, you know, in five or six months now, except I'm working on this new concept for the next novel, but uh, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's feast or famine. Both jobs are. And again, it appeals to my personality and temperament. I like that. Okay. Thank you, Daniel. Um, another question from our audience is any movie or TV adaptations in the works? Well, I guess it depends on how you define in the works. I've had probably seven or eight properties optioned or re-optioned. They've been trying to make my Shanghai trilogy into a movie and a TV series. The fourth group, literally the fourth group to option it is now working on it, you know, and Lord love them. It's incredibly hard. It's easy to write a book. It's I'm lucky to have great publishers and it's easier for them to publish lots of books. It's very expensive to make movies and TV shows and there's a million hurdles to get over. So, you know, I'm still would be a dream. It'd be lovely if, you know, they could, you know, especially that trilogy, which would be such a, so appropriate for kind of a, a Netflix type series and, and stuff because uh, it's a fascinating piece of history. Even if you don't like the book, the history is, is mind-boggling, the story of Shanghai and World War II and the Jews who lived there with, along with everybody else. But you just can't count on it. I mean, I've felt like I've been very close at times and seen it fall apart. So now I'm kind of generally skeptical <laughs> and, and uh, I'd still love to see it, but I, I don't count on it. Thank you. So how was your experience writing a trilogy different than your standalone novels? <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's a great question because for one thing you have to remember, you know, if you make a character dead or gay and or in book one, they better stay that way by book three. <laughs> so there's a lot more things to keep track of. You know? So that was a challenge. Um, I loved staying with characters, a group of this, this group of characters became very important to me. Um, you know, they represent a reflection of my own family history. I, you know, I'm, my, my Jewish roots, my, my parents' families didn't escape through Shanghai, but in the sense that it tells the story of, you know, really more Holocaust escapees than survivors, they got away. And, and Shanghai was this incredible place where 20,000 German Jews lived and largely survived the war under harrowing circumstances. And so it was, you know, by the end, I was really attached to the, to the family that the, that the story follows. 
you know, and there's also a, a, a Shanghai native, a Eurasian uh, nurse who becomes really a surgeon and she's the lead female protagonist who eventually marries the male protagonist who's a, a Jewish surgeon from Austria. And <clears throat> the, all of the, that, you know, I, they began in a weird way to feel real to me and, you know, and, and then the trilogy ended with the end of the war, but a lot of people have asked me if I will follow the family to Israel or the U.S. or wherever. And, you know, I still think about that because um, it was, uh, these were characters I carried, you know, over three books and five years of writing. And it was uh, very uh, personal to me. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And another sort of writing question from the audience is, was it difficult to find a publisher for your first novel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. And luckily, I had no idea how difficult it would be. Um, you know, I, I had a couple of manuscripts that were never published and I just kept plugging away. I thought eventually I'll get an agent and, you know, and I did. And, but even then I got an agent, I couldn't get a publisher. And then I just thought it was kind of a natural thing to happen. I didn't realize how lucky, how much I beat the odds to get to where I was. So, uh, you know, I've now had, you know, a few publishers, both in the U.S. and Canada and, you know, with world rights I think I'm up to 12 or 13 languages that I'm published in, in not all books, but various books. Uh, and so uh, it's great. And now I'm with Simon Schuster in Canada, the US and actually all of the English world in UK and Australia. And that's been a great relationship with the last two books. Uh, and the next one, hopefully onward, will be with them. So, uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, people always ask me for advice. How did you do it? And how, I mean, again, it, it for me, it boiled down to blind luck and blissful ignorance that I didn't know how hard it would be. And I don't have any great advice for people. You, you do need luck, but you also need to keep writing. I, the one thing I tell when I speak at schools and stuff, I say to kids, you could be, you could have taught, you could be born with Tiger Woods golf talents or some masterclass pianist. You know, you could have the best hands in the world to play piano, but unless you practice, unless you do it, you'll never, you know, rise to that level. And to be a good writer, to be a good writer, a great writer but even to be a good writer you need to write you need to write a lot and uh and so that's been you know my lesson my experience and i'm very fortunate <clears throat> to have found the publishers i have but uh you know there's so much my first book was a big international bestseller pandemic because it was right when the bird it was right after sars and right when the bird flu was peaking i couldn't have my timing couldn't have been better the last high, which tells about the opioid crisis, was a Globe and Mail bestseller for seven weeks in a row, but it never really reached the attention of a lot of people or that maybe it could have because COVID completely overshadowed everything, right? So it's so much luck involved. You know, I, I really am. I, I hope some of your listeners will read The Last High and get back to me and let me know what they think of it. But it's such a crapshoot, you know, you can never count on. There, there's some writers who are so great, they are gonna always rise to the top, but there's a lot of us who write pretty good stories. And, you know, it's whether we make, become got great publishers and become big bestsellers depends on a whole bunch of factors that is, you know, largely beyond our control. Thank you, Daniel. And of course, we're very impressed with your, your career, both as a doctor and as a successful writer. And uh, I have a very nice comment here from the audience saying, I can't wait to begin reading your books and I will definitely be suggesting a title to my book club for the coming year. So kudos to you, Daniel. Thank you. Uh, on that note, I, you know, people who, 
where possible, I do appear at book clubs through Zoom and stuff, you know, I, if it's all schedule permitting and stuff. So people can always get in touch with me. I'm appearing at a couple in August where people have reached out and asked me to come and talk. And I'm always happy. I love talking to people who've read the books, who have questions like, like you do. So um, if, if there are people out there uh, who do suggest other book clubs and want me to, to, to show up, as long as I, our schedules match, I'd be happy to drop in. Thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, so I have another couple of questions that are, what are you currently reading and who are some of your favorite authors? Um, you know, every time I get asked this question often also when I speak and immediately my mind goes blank, you know, it's like I've never read a book in my life. Um, but I, I, I just finished, uh, God, the the new Eric Larson book, the, the Winston Churchill story, the something in the splendor in the vial, I think it's called. I love his writing. He he writes non nonfiction like it is fiction. And, uh, you know, he's the writer who wrote The Devil in the White City. And and this is in Churchill's, you know, such a historical hero of mine. Uh, he covers his first year, you know, really the darkest year in, in British history. And his first year in office in 1940 <clears throat> and the, you know, in the, 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 the bombing of London and, and, uh, and anyway, so it was great. Um, I just started cause so many people have recommended Lonesome Dove, um, which is that huge Western book. And I'm enjoying that. Um, I just finished Robin Harding's new book, Robin, you read her quote of mine. She wrote a really good psychosexual thriller called the swap, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> And so I read very eclectically. In terms of true literary heroes of mine, I have several, but writers like um, Ken Follett, who, who, who do what I've tried to do, which is sort of cross the spectrum of writing thrillers and you know, historical novels. And you know, I, I tried to write an epic story in, the, in my trilogy. And so, I, and there's another British writer called Robert Harris who wrote Pompeii and several other books. I, I love his books. He, he is so great at tackling historical fiction and making it, uh, you know, making it accessible. Um, you know, yeah, there's a million other writers, of course, but those are a few that come to mind. Perfect. I think that was pretty good, Daniel, for us putting you on the spot like that. I'm just waiting another second to see if I have any other questions, but I think that's pretty much it. So I would definitely like to take a moment to say a big thank you to you, uh, Dr. Kala, and uh, thank you also to your publisher, Jillian, um, for taking the time to make this event possible, and also for all that you do right now at the hospital, because both uh, are very important for us librarians, your books, and for all Canadians, what you're doing at the hospital. So thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing uh, insights about your work and your very impressive dual career. Well, thank you, Daniel, and thanks to your readers and Cote Saint-Luc and the, you know, the, the, the Canadians who support, you know, Canadian writers like me, it's so important. So um, yeah, thanks, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. You too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.